happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 196, if you can believe it, for October the 28th, 2020. It's almost Halloween, a blue moon. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we are still recovering from a pretty early ice storm, and we haven't really had one for about five years. And so we've been out of school the last two days. We're out of school tomorrow. And I am excited to get to chat with my friend Jason Neifer, who's up in Montana. And I understand you may take a little vacation coming up, Jason. What what are you going to do with yourself when you're not having to check email for the Montana you know, Digital Academy? That's a great question. Um, I obviously won't be traveling, and that's what I would usually do. I will say we stopped counting um, because the the pl- actually that's not entirely true. The planned trips that we had we had to have cancel uh, starting the second week of March. Um, I think the number was seven or eight that we had lightly planned, but we were planning on going to Thailand for Christmas this year. Um, and obviously that is very much off. So, um, I think, uh, I'm obviously going to probably stay, keep a close eye on the election. And assuming that is resolved on Tuesday, then I probably will then turn off the news for several days. Um, and not read any of that. In fact, we have an article or two tonight about the dangerousness of, uh, maybe paying too close attention to political news. Um, but yeah, I think relax a little bit and, uh, I like to, to get up in the morning and drink coffee and read. That is my Saturday and Sunday morning routine, especially now that, uh, uh, going outdoors is no longer, well, as, as, as friendly of an option in Montana as winter has kind of started here. Uh, there's snow on the ground here. It was 45 degrees today, but it was negative two on Sunday morning. So, uh, winter is absolutely here. So, but I don't, I mean, as much, as much as I'm excited about my vacation, I don't think think that's the topic of the hour for us. Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about? Well, officially, we are going to talk about recent technology headlines through an educational lens. So we have uh, collected, as we always do each week, a number of links that you can find at edtechsr.com slash links. And it is a large Google Doc, which I actually thought, you know, maybe at some point we're going to have to break this thing in two and, you know, just start, start over or whatever. But we've been going for almost 200 episodes and all the links are there. And tonight, if my page will load, uh, I could, I could just say from memory that we'll be talking about, uh, the tech correction, a uh, little, uh, Google news, always Android news, a little Apple news. Um, we're going to probably have some news, um, which is, I think I put media literacy slash, um, election related, uh, because we're not a political show, but there are many ways in which, you know, politics intersects with technology. So we're going to need to talk about that. Uh, and we always have the lovely miscellaneous category and maybe my page is going to load here. Finally, copyright, fair use, connectivity, digital divide, Microsoft security, podcasting, and of course we'll end with the geeks of the week. So where would you like to start tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, I mean, I think in light of the fact that uh, one week from now, I hope that all this election mess will be over with. Let's start with the media literacy election meddling category that you started in on the dock. And I guess um, I'll start with a very quick one. And it looks like you have some really interesting ones in the notes tonight, Wes. But uh, The Verge announced uh, yesterday that they are going to partner with Associated Press for election results. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because you're starting to see a lot of articles and hear a lot of news stories. I've heard a few on NPR. There's been a few on um, I, I, I don't really watch news programs or news channels. I don't have cable. Uh, I, I do uh, go to the news section of the YouTube uh, uh, app on my smart TV. Do sometimes take a look at at at, at uh, stories for that. But you're starting to hear Facebook. Uh, certainly Google, um, to a lesser extent, Instagram, a little more Twitter. They're starting to come up with strategies to deal with election night chaos that I guess for uh, anything else is, is an attempt to kind of get rid of some of the criticisms of the national news media in the 2016 election. And I think it's really interesting. This is happening. And what, what apparently will happen is that they will, in addition to banning uh, election-related ads, uh, um, 
uh, after the polls close on November 3rd, so no one can take out an advertisement in order to claim a victory in a close race to try to stoke public fears in one direction or the other. Google is going to display Associated Press-based authoritative calls on elections. So if you have a question and Google it, which I would imagine is going to be fairly common for the tech-savvy folks on election night, you're going to get AP results as a top result integrated into the results. And, and I think it's an attempt there to think that you don't have to put up with whatever search engine optimization pops to the top there, which could be, uh, you know, real news or not if you're not evaluating. And I think this is a very solid step to provide, uh, you know, a couple of extra steps of legitimacy to search engines on that night. So that's breaking-ish news, but I want to mention that. And then, sir, what what articles have you thrown in tonight uh, about this topic? Well, several. Uh, the first one, I, you know, Wikipedia is a phenomenal example of so many different things. And Wired Magazine on October 26th has a great article called Wikipedia's Plan to Resist Election Day Misinformation. Um, I think one of the other podcast links that I have in the show, maybe under this topic, actually, um, is, an, is an interview in which uh, the... the uh, interviewees and hosts talk about Wikipedia as, you know, a shining example of how in the midst of polarized times, you know, one organization has been able to navigate so many different, um, you know, polarizing forces and, and influences and, and be able to, you know, present uh, a consistent message that, that, hey, by the way, that everyone gets to see, regardless of your political persuasion. You know, you see the same Wikipedia page at the, at the same moment. Uh, so uh, it's called Wikipedia's Plan to Resist Election Day Information. And so it details the ways in which Wikipedia, you know, protects articles and they're planning to, you know, protect their main election 2020 page, but how they're going to be, you know, utilizing their series of levels of, of protection and, and, you know, prohibiting, for instance, newly registered users, like brand new to the platform that haven't done anything in the past from, you know, being able to immediately edit, you know, certain pages. They're, they're just tightening their restrictions. And so it's really a highlight of the, you know, procedures that are, have, that are in place and have been in place for quite a while on Wikipedia on controversial issues because there's a lot of controversial issues. And so I think, um, I think that is, you know, really important to note. And it's not just for the election. It's also important to note, you know, the valuable tool that Wikipedia is. I've mentioned it before that just adding Wikipedia to searches when you have a source that you're not familiar with can really be enlightening because it can, you know, show you even on the talk page, if there's debate and controversy, what the controversy is and what are people saying, you know, about this particular source. And, and you can get a, a, a reasonably good idea about, you know, the background of that. So, uh, Wikipedia is definitely, um, you know, a good example of a crowdsource platform in which media literacy skills uh, and 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 I would say a a plan and procedures uh, for handling what they know is going to be an, ext- an extremely controversial time, uh, re- you know, ways to get ready ready for that. Um, so I, I, that was that's one of the articles. Another one um, is let's see, I guess this this one is related. Um, this is BBC News on October 4th. So this is a few weeks old. China and Taiwan clash over Wikipedia edits. So on the topic of uh, Wikipedia, um, <laughs> China is getting really, you know, serious and, and really playing a long game with many, many different things, uh, including artificial intelligence. And they recognize, they being the Chinese government, the importance of Wikipedia. I know a few weeks ago, Jason, you, you put an article about you know, the impact on tourism for a well-written, well-sourced, you know, Wikipedia article for a location with photographs and things like that. I mean, it, it actually makes makes an impact. So China is being much more strategic and intentional, perhaps, than other countries and just folks have in the past about what Wikipedia says about things. And so as tools like, you know, uh, Google Smart Assistant or Siri, Apple Smart Assistant, you know, use Wikipedia content to respond. I mean, the response for things like what is Taiwan actually has been changing because of of edits and, and these kinds of edit wars that are going on. So I commend this as a real fascinating article. Again, 
pointing to how Wikipedia is seeking to mediate these kinds of issues. But it's also, I think, just really valuable as we talk with students about contemporary issues as well as history, how these kinds of things are manifesting in the digital realm and what the sides are, what the different perspectives are, and then how, you know, Wikipedia is working to navigate these folk, you know, th these controversies where people have, have such, uh, competing perspectives on things. So. Any thoughts about that, Dr. Neifer? Well, I will tell you that, that in general, I would say that, uh, the Wikipedia, what, 22 year old phenomenon now? It's been around for some time. And I still think it's one of the best places to go if you want to find resources to research a topic deeper. Generally speaking, I found it a, a, both as an historian, um, and a, an educator to be a great first start if I need a quick explanation to something. But if I want to research something more deeply or find resources I wouldn't find from a search engine, that's a good place to go to get the, 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 the bottom research, right? And I think Wikipedia realized really early how weird it looks when you have a community, um, uh, edited encyclopedia that people are just saying things off of the top of their head, um, where they really did build in a sourcing engine and a community response to unsourced articles. And I, I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not surprised that they're taking a proactive stance to deal with potential misinformation on election night. Um, I know that you know, you can still, it's, it's very easy to find articles uh, on Wikipedia that are either locked or you get warnings about, uh, that the debate is too fierce over the topic. And so you should proceed with caution before not necessarily believing, but you know, not verifying those resources. And I think it, it, it's a real win in, um, you know, in, in the internet age where lots of other social like technologies have been of question, um, you know, the accuracy and also the, the kind of even handedness of uh, the Wikipedia has been pretty extraordinary. So great to hear. So another article in the same category, uh, and these are, you know, a couple, well, one's a couple weeks old, one's from the summer, but uh, this one is called It's Time to Talk Seriously About Deep Fakes and Misinformation. And this is from the website WebRoot. Um, and we've talked about deep fakes on the show previously. Those are videos that are created where someone's face is juxtaposed on someone else's face or the actual video itself is just a complete fabrication. In some cases, they'll get someone as a model who looks a little bit like the target person and then they'll, they'll take their face and, and, you know, like other things that involve, you know, machine learning, it, it requires a lot of data. So public officials like elected officials, uh, think presidents and, and you, you know, senators and, and representatives, people who've been on C-SPAN a lot. They've really had a lot of video taken of them. There's a lot of that data that can be fed into the system, celebrities. And so, uh, deep fakes, you know, initially I think gained traction because of pornography. But this article is pointing out what a danger it is in terms of election time because people don't realize today how how good these deep fakes can be. Not only, you know, presenting a, a false impression that this is a video of the person, but that their voice is saying whatever it is you want them to say. We've talked about this multiple times on the show and they use the term, you know, October surprise that we could have something right before the election, complete misinformation. And, and actually, we wouldn't call that if it was a deep fake designed to really throw the election or, or you know, uh, mis, mis, uh, deceive people. We would call that uh, misinformation or actually malinformation uh, because it would be the intention of that would be, you know, to explicitly cause harm. Uh, but this article, which is from October 6th, you know, is saying these these technologies are really maturing to the point where they it doesn't take, you know, a nation state or, you know, somebody with with millions and millions of dollars in really deep pockets to be able to create these. And so they're a threat to privacy. They're a, a cybersecurity threat to businesses and they're a threat. Uh, to, to election campaigns and to elections as well. So hopefully we're not going to see something like this emerge. Uh, but the, the landscape is ripe and the technology available, um, open, open technology that's available is really, uh, ripe for that. And then in the course of reading, and I don't know if this was on from the foreign affairs article, 
Uh, maybe I'll do that one first. So Foreign Affairs, uh, current September, October uh, issue has an article called The Kremlin's Plot Against Democracy, How Russia Updated Its 2016 Playbook for 2020. Uh, again, we've talked on the show about the ways in which, you know, in the 2016 election, Russia and other other actors, um, which are in the shadows and are not, you know, fully disclosed, but we know a lot uh, based upon research and congressional testimony and, and reports that have emerged from U.S. intelligence agencies and others about the role that that Russia took. Um, they are not going, they are not currently as, as easily identifiable. Like, oh, look, they just bought that Facebook ad in rubles. You know, they are doing things that are, are more hidden, but there's also additional actors to include China and Iran, uh, that we know of. Um, and, you know, this plan that, um, that Russia has and this desire that they have to really so, um, discord to try and amplify issues and things that polarize f- us here in the United States to subvert democracy. Uh, you know, unfortunately, in 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 the last debate, which I did watch most of it, the presidential debate, uh, you know, our president really just dismisses any of this talk about Russia as foolishness, and, and it's not. I mean, our credible information or uh, intelligence agencies and, and sources in the United States, as well as journalists, have documented this really, really well. And so, what this article is saying, <coughs> and again, hopefully, this isn't going to play you know play out, but they're saying that. You know, what we will see in this current election cycle is going to be much worse than what we saw in the past. We are seeing Facebook and Twitter and YouTube take actions to curtail the spread of disinformation and the, the weaponization and manipulation of their platforms in ways that we did not see in 2016. So, you know, this is the, the tech correction that, that we talk about and we'll probably visit about a little bit more in this, you know, show, but it's, um, the potential is there, and then and there's also, of course, always this cat and mouse game that's being played. And so, I it was either in that article or another one that I ran across this. This was from the the summer of 2019 in June. I didn't even know this existed. There's an agency called the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and so they have a a whole you know PDF here called the War on Pineapple: Understanding Foreign Interference in Five Steps, and it kind of came about. Uh, almost it sounded like as sort of a, you know, offhanded comment and experiment by one of their officials. But what they were able to do was on social media to take what you wouldn't think is necessarily a hugely divisive issue. And that is, do you like pineapple on your pizza, like pineapple and ham, like the Hawaiian? Or, you know, do you prefer just like a straight prep pepperoni and standard thing? But then you can identify based upon that split, uh, groups and you can manipulate that group and you can distort the conversation and then you can, you can basically, uh, hijack conversations in media based on things that are, are polarizing, which you might not even think would be that big of a deal. So I had not heard of that before. I had not heard of that agency before. I'm glad that we have agencies in the United States that are tackling these issues and trying to to educate the public. So I guess I'll throw that question to you, Jason. Do you think we have been sufficiently educated and the platforms, although I don't think government has necessarily made regulation regulatory changes, but platforms are doing things differently. How do you feel about where we stand with all this uh, a week out of the election? Well, it's, I don't think it's enough from the standpoint that um, I, I still think Facebook is a bit of a cesspool of political division. Um, I, and actually, there's something i got to get off my chest, Wes. Pineapple does not belong on pizza under any circumstance. Wow. I'm sorry. Look at that, guys. We're talking about but, some strong feelings here yeah. on the EdTech Situation Room and when it I comes to pizza and pineapple. Unafraid to say that on Facebook or join several sketchy groups to help prove my, if, my efficacy. If there. anybody wants to deliver a Canadian bacon and pineapple <laughs> pizza to my house right now, I will gladly accept it and consume <laughs> as much of it as I can. I, I, my rule used to be no fruit on pizza, but there is a wonderful pizza joint in Missoula, Montana called Bega Pizza, and they have a flathead cherry and sausage pizza that is muy bueno. So, um, I, I, yeah, but, but pineapple, why ruin great? And who would think that would be divisive? But that's the point of this article, that you can take something like that and then 
really use that to further grow divides and then just completely hijack conversations and get folks polarized, which, you know, is, it really speaks to our human psychology more than it right. speaks to technology. Well, and we've known that from, 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 uh, uh, basic psychology for decades and decades and decades, right? That you can take something relatively arbitrary and, um, un, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not un, inconsequential and really get people fired up about it to the point of it's not surprising to do that. And then the other one, and I was scanning the article and didn't see if this was part of this or not, but the other piece too is that oftentimes they will take these, take Facebook groups that are not related to that at all. Um, and, and build up a huge cachet of people that are, are maybe closely aligned to a particular issue, but they don't mention that issue. And then they'll just change the group completely. They'll, uh, uh, absolutely and utterly, um, uh, you know, wipe away any of the, uh, previous, uh, uh, notions of that and then start feeding, you know, trash mis- misinformation to those groups. And, um, and, and my understanding too, that, that, that groups are for sale on, on, on gray markets too. Like you can get, Facebook groups have 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 users. It seems a little shot in the dark that 50,000 users that, you know, were unrelated to something might hold a view that you could tweak, but it's not wholly unreasonable. And, you know, it goes back to that these technologies are just so powerful, and yet we're not really sure of, of their entire power yet. And I'm not entirely sure if we understand how we're man- manipulated by them either. And I think that's a piece that's extremely, extremely important. I want to mention another article that's related to this because I, I put this uh, elsewhere in, in our tech correction section, but I think it's, it, it, it's a, a good thing to insert now. Uh, the MIT technology review, uh, mentioned something that I think we talked about a little bit last week that, uh, one of the Facebook engineers that testified to Congress said that, that Facebook strategies are much like big tobacco. I think we talked about that last week. And this article from the Technology Review does a good job of taking that one step further to say that the way we battled big tobacco in the 80s and 90s in the United States might be a page we could pull here in order to discuss how we might be able to evolve and and justify regulation of social media. And the big point here is that regulating smoking became not necessarily about you because you have freedom to smoke, right? That was the argument in, in, in the seventies and eighties that people have the choice to trash their own health, right? Ignoring the public health consequences of having a bunch of sick people that need services, but ignoring that for a moment when the secondhand smoke piece of this, in other words, the impact smoking had on others became of issue and became scientifically extremely clear that became a justification then for regulating tobacco. And the point this article is making is that regulation might be justified uh, for social media in part because honestly, it's not just what you, what you might be impacted by posting on social media, by you sharing disinformation, um, malinformation with others, by you buying into something that's a hoax or intended to get you to think or, or, or react a certain way, you might indeed be engaging in, uh, in, 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 Activity that's harmful to others. And, um, it's, it's a novel approach. Um, it's obviously needs a lot more thought and, in 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 application. But I thought that might be an interesting, you know, way to go next when we start talking about, uh, you know, now that we have a lot of evidence, this is from the, that the article you share was from the Department of Homeland Security, right? But that becomes then a part of, of, of maybe how we start figuring out how to turn this around. And, and the, thing to mention here that we've talked about and if you haven't watched it yet please do the social dilemma it is a documentary airing on netflix was released in september by the center for humane technology Um, my wife and i actually just watched it Uh, i I watched it for the second time it was her first time Um, we're going to be doing a parent university on november 10th over zoom for our parents about that so important and it and they're speaking in that documentary about this long game Right. That we are going to to need to make some changes, but they're not going to happen quickly. And so, right. Just just as we saw with smoking, this was a long campaign that, uh, you know, attempted various ways of, of educating the public. But ultimately, public opinion had to be swayed before legislation could be changed. And then reality could change. Right. Because, I mean, I, I think I remember 
I know when my wife was in high school, she's a little older than I am. Uh, you know, there were, there were smoking designated smoking areas at school. I kind of think those might have been sort of on the way out, you know, <laughs> by like 84, 85. But, uh, you know, we're talking about a major significant change in the perceptions that we have as a general public. Uh, and it was a long game that we had to play. So I think this is a long game as well when it comes to technology. And yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think uh, strategizing and considering the ways in which, because like being aware of this is, is one level, but Lynn, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to find groups that are supporting, you know, this agenda that are lobbying legislators? Are you going to try to contact your own legislators? Right. I mean, a lot of times we have to be pretty upset in order to do that. A lot of people don't just, you know, write, write their legislators. But hey, this, this is how representative government is supposed to work. And we are having an election. So it's, it's a good thing to talk about. And that's, that's part of the both right and responsibility we have as citizens is to communicate with our elected officials, let them know as constituents what kinds of issues are important to us and what kinds of action would we, would we like them to take. So. All right. Where would you like to go next? Well, why don't we do one more political news one, and then I have a funny Facebook one I want to share, and then we could maybe move on from um, what's kind of turning into social media all the time uh, 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 in in tech commentary. So a, a great Atlantic article from October 8th, uh, reading too much political news is bad for your well-being. And there's a lot of, of scientific evidence that the more informed you are and the more you watch long form news programming, the more you read uh, long form news, uh, uh, the, the, the less happy you are. And that's that itself is not that useful of information. But this article comes with some additional guidance to say that there are things you can do to help mitigate this. And and I thought it was very useful information. So I thought I would pass it along. First one, instead of just complaining about what's going on, do something about it. And I think that's something that might end up being part of the story of the 2000, well, this is certainly true of the 2008 election, maybe the difference between the 2016 and 2020 election, that if you are are, are interested in and in, in outraged uh, about any component of, of the news, don't just sit around complaining about it on social media. Go go do something about it. Volunteer for a campaign. Become more informed yourself of, of, of the issues and not just trusting, you know, headlines in the media. Engage with others. Uh, join political action groups. Uh, a canvas neighborhoods. Help people return their ballots back during a pandemic. All things you can do to help the situation that have nothing to do with doom scrolling on your phone. The second piece is ration your consumption of politics and limit the time you spend discussing it. That's hard for some people. And I would say it's hard for me personally, in part because I love politics and it, it is an academic pursuit for me. My, my, my undergraduate degree is in political science. And at one point I had thought about going to law school and in part being uh, maybe engaged in politics someday. And I am to a, a lesser extent now. And I don't ever think, well, I have run for office before. I will not do it again. Long story. But the um, that's the reason why I'm in the Wikipedia. But the piece of this that I think is important is that um, you know, this notion of, you know, being proactive about not just scrolling through news headlines in your phone because they're there, like give yourself 20 or 30 minutes a day and just say, stop. And, um, uh, I think that's an important piece of this. And we talked about this notion many times in the past, that part of the literacies we need to be teaching kids and really the literacies we need to encourage amongst one another is using your technology responsibly. And I don't think it's responsible to spend six hours scrolling through news because it's there. And I'll tell you, news junkies like myself, right? And I am a news junkie. I love the fact that I can spend $20, $25, $30 a month subscribed to four or five different electronic, major electronic newspapers and have access to the full versions of that um, with, with, with no limits. That's great, but you got to limit that. And it needs to be toned down to a certain amount per day. And then this one's really interesting. Turn off Ultra partisan news sources, especially on your own side. And 
the uh, I will tell you that that's actually kind of my strategy. I know where to go find news that agrees with me um, or, you know, maybe knows what hits my outrage buttons. I like watching that. It, it makes me feel vindicated in some ways, but it doesn't really inform me of anything. Watching more neutral news sources or even ones that disagree with me not only help challenge my perspectives and make my beliefs more 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 solid, but it might be better for the echo chamber that happens in your own head when you're you utilizing sources that perhaps are not as, as center leaning as maybe they could be. So, um, you know, I mentioned uh, earlier or actually Wes mentioned earlier in the show, I'm going to be on vacation next week. I obviously will be keeping very close eye on the election on Tuesday. Um, I will not give up the opportunity to read a little bit of news on the couple of days before that. But my plan is to stop consuming news on Tuesday night at midnight. I hope the election's decided by then, but that's going to be part of my strategy is I need a break from it. So a couple thoughts on this. Number one, I will probably mention later in the show uh, a little update about uh, Starlink and, and Elon Musk and, and connectivity. Like, we are literally at the point where if you want to be connected 24-7, no matter where you are in the United States, and next year it'll be on the planet, you will be able to do that. Um, that is not healthy. Uh, for a number of years, at least I would say the last five to six, you know, for our family, and we didn't get to do this this summer. We, we did get to a few weeks ago for fall break, go, go camp in the mountains. Going to a place where we are literally not able to be connected has been a hugely beneficial thing for our wellness. Just huge. Um, I haven't mentioned this on the show in a while, but there's a great book by Carl Onre called In Praise of Slowness. And it started actually with, uh, the, the, the slow movement, the food, slow food movement in Italy and just really enjoying food. But like, Golly, we need to be very wary of, of what we worship. And a lot of folks do worship information and the, and this again touches on the social dilemma. It's a great documentary. You know, the hit of, of positive chemicals that our brain gets when we are, you know, seeing these, these intermittent slot machine like rewards that, that are coming to us via social media, whether those are likes or comments or, or other things like that. So, uh, I do hope, Jason, that you'll be able to, to take a break. And the thing is, it is really, really hard. I mean, if you're not in a place where physically you can't connect, I, I, I've gone, not this last May because of the pandemic, but, you know, I don't know, for like almost 10 years, the first weekend in May, I usually will go to a men's conference down in South Texas. And for like the first eight years, you couldn't connect there. Like that was a feature. It wasn't a downside. It was like, oh, we're going to Mo Ranch. We, you know, sorry, honey, you can't call me. And that presents some difficulties. But anyway, that's, that's just my first response. And then the other thought about this is talking about how we need to be helping students and helping ourselves navigate this. And I don't just want to absolutely berate a, and I don't, Anyway, a particular person and teacher, but I'll, so I'll try to say this in general. In the curriculum in school today, we have students, for instance, you know, studying and reading Shakespeare. We have students studying and reading Beowulf. I mean, we have kids doing intense multi-week units of study on, on topics that have been a part of the curriculum and, and maybe the canon of the curriculum at a particular school in a particular area for decades, maybe centuries. I don't know. Uh, we need to take a look at our curriculum and this needs to be in it. This is so important, right? The power of these social media technologies to not only get our attention, but maintain our attention. And you mentioned doom, doom scrolling, Jason. Uh, it's a real thing and it's not just for kids. It's adults as well. So I really think that these conversations need to be, um, part of the mainstream curriculum right now. It's sort of like if you have a teacher who, you know, you're lucky to get, maybe you're going to be talking about these kind of things because they're, they, they're just usually not part of the curriculum in the way that they, they need to be. So yes, that, that is a rant, but um, feel real passionate about that. Absolutely. Uh, well, um, shall we do maybe some nerdier stuff? Yeah. Uh, what, how about that podcast tracking one? I think you've had that one maybe for a week or two. Let's do yeah. that one. 
I have. So the markup reports on October 8th that it will ask the critical question, is your podcast tracking you? And what's interesting to me about this, and we, we've mentioned kind of some meta commentary on podcasting in the past. I've been fascinated with podcasting. Uh, well, I mean, d- d- 20 years, right? Podcasting's been around, and I used to listen to tons of podcasts uh, when you had to download them onto your iPod uh, using iTunes, and uh, I love the notion of that because I've always loved radio content. Um, I was a little kid that had a radio in my room, and I loved in the middle of the night you could pick up uh, stations from far, far away, and in fact, when the real player became a deal in the late 90s, and you could get radio stations from other cities and nations, and now you can download apps where there's literally 100,000 radio stations that you can get from there. I don't think we really appreciate how different that was that, you know, I'm a kid in a town growing up when I'm a little kid and, you know, there's nine radio stations uh, on a good night that you can get access to and 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 three of them are private broadcasts that are broadcasting uh, 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 non-traditional content. So it's not really, uh, you know, nine. I, I was always amazed by that. But what this is talking about is the slow evolution towards tracking its users in part because of, of monetization. And many of the platforms that are serving up podcasts now and major companies are in this, this is not fly by night companies um, are starting to add tracking to it for the purposes of telling advertisers who's listening, how long they're listening, how many times they listen um, so that they can better serve advertising content to you. And then more importantly, importantly track the number of, of, of listeners. And um, I have to say, I'm of two minds of this. Obviously, tracking is bad, right, from the standpoint of we want our privacy and it's nobody's business uh, how many times, you know, I'm listening to X, Y, and Z podcast. But the part that we need to be, I think, extra cognizant of here is that our podcast is not an example of this because we do not monetize this podcast, right? We're doing this more or less for our own edification. We know we have listeners. Uh, shout out to our, our, our regular listener in our chat room, right? Um, Peggy George, uh, moderating chat tonight. But the other piece that's also a part of this is that, um, you know, we, we don't do this for financial purposes. So we don't track you because, um, other than, I'm not even sure if we'd have the ability to track you other than to maybe track an IP address. We want you to shout out to us because we don't know you're there unless yeah. you tell us. Basically. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly it. Right. Literally. And, and in fact, you know, and I, I know, and I know we have listeners. I've been stopped at ISTE by a listener. I've been stopped at INACOL by a listener. I was stopped at the digital learning annual conference DLAC this past uh, uh, February uh, by a listener. So I know, and someone heard my voice, right? That was the part that it actually kind of freaked me out that, wait, are you Jason Neifer? And I'm like, I am like, oh, I recognized your voice from EdTech Situation Room. I'm like, you're the listener. But the point is, is that th- that's not what we're talking about. But the big money podcast, right? So anything NPR is doing uh, is is a financial piece. Anything that has advertising in it. So I'm thinking about uh, like the wonderful podcast Reply All on Gimlet Media. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, and that podcast, I have to apologize, my cat is uh, freaking out. But um, the uh, that is a that is a podcast that. Um, um, uh, has advertising in it, but is probably being served up by a system that is both tracking the number of downloads and they're starting to come up with more and more clever ways to get even your podcatcher, whether it's, it's, it's a, a, a podcatcher that, that's, that's made to do this or not, send data back for the purpose of advertising. So I, I don't know if I care in part because the free internet runs by advertising. But it's it's something to think about. So, uh, just of note, interesting, just full full disclosure. So, we uh, we use a plugin on our WordPress uh, site uh, called Podlove, and it does enable us to know how many downloads. It's not tracking who's done what. We don't know how long people have listened. It just and the, and how many of these are bots, right? Because bots can be downloading things too. But you know, we're consistently getting over a hundred and hundred fifty, you know, downloads a week. I mean, that's that's the the realm of, of our podcast. Um, we have one hundred nine downloads from last week, which is that's you know that's great. Um, I think we do need to care about the entire model of current social media, which, which Shuzana, Shosana, 
Shoshana Zuboff. She is the author of the book called Surveillance Capitalism. She is one of multiple people included in the documentary, The Social Dilemma, uh, interviewed. You know, that is the underlying model. And <laughs> I just saw this again, so I'm, it's just fresh on the brain, but you know, it treats human beings as extractable resources. The data that we create, the information that we share about ourselves is monetized, um, in, in many cases, really without our knowledge and kind of without our permission, although we're all clicking the, you know, I accept agreements for, for whatever, you know, we're signing up to do. Uh, that is the model. And so we do need to care about it uh, because at one level it's innocuous and not that big of a deal. Hey, I'm seeing an ad for, you know, a product like I like, enjoy cooking. I, I've been seeing these. I'm going to say this. So who knows? Maybe I'm going to see even more of these ads. But hex clad is this like expensive kind of pan that you can be you know cooking with i guess it's just fantastic non-stick surface whatever that's what i'm seeing in my instagram and my facebook feed you know all the time and like that's actually kind of interesting to me because i am frustrated about my my uh you know year old pan that i'm ready to chuck out that i bought at walmart <laughs> i mean that sounds like it's not that big of a deal but when it comes to election subversion and folks being able to micro target folks and use a b testing which involves thousands and thousands of iterations to know exactly what kind of message you know because jason doesn't like pineapple and connecting the dots with these on his pizza we should say maybe you like pineapple otherwise um but have you ever had hawaiian pineapple by the way have you and your wife been to hawaii i'm gonna totally just go i was to, i went to hawaii in 1979 so you need when this stupid pandemic is over you need to go back for sure and visit the dole you know pineapple place because the the pineapple that they can't export oh my gosh it is so good it is so good that's a complete squirrel. So <laughs> sorry, guy. Um, but no, if th this is the thing about data and, and the ways, the, the reason why we should care is because if you can connect enough dots, which some of these may seem wildly, you know, irrelevant, just not core, you know, not a, not a correlation, but these, these, these engines of, of, um, you have technology, these, these programs are, are able to put these things together and, and they are able to manipulate us. And that's really what, Social media and the advertising model uh, underlying surveillance capitalism is about. It's about trying to shift perceptions and shift behavior in the way that people who pay want to have that happen. And so when it comes to, you know, hex clad, you know, cookware or 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 the kind of pizza you want to order or whatever like that, that's innocuous. And we're like, you know, I don't really care. But if your democracy has been subverted and, you know, some some rich organizations or individuals or other nation states have subverted your electoral process because they're able to not hack the system, but just use the system the way it's been designed, which is, hey, guys, you want to micro target and send a message to a political group? Great. Go for it. We'd love for you to because, you know, we want more money. That becomes something that we we need to care about. And, and so I think that's, again, the bigger issue that's a long game. And it's challenging because, you know, we're all enjoying our, our social media and, and enjoying our connections to our friends and, and enjoying a lot of things. And that's, that's why we need to become aware of these, of these issues. And we need leaders that are going to be aware of them and uh, groups that are going to be advocating to, Try and make a difference. So, yep, absolutely. Peg so, Peggy says that has happened to her at ISTE as well. Yes, Peggy, you are our number one fangirl. We love you, and we are so happy that you're here. You keep coming back for more. You know, yay! Do you feel the love tonight? I'm not going to sing. Um, <laughs> Thank actually, you. my wife. Yeah, my wife just said she's done with ISTE. She said that today. She has like no desire to go, but like there is this ability to connect with people that it is like, that's it's pretty cool i mean there's so many folks there that's why the lounges and the small interactions are really and i do like some of the keynotes but it's not about i don't know people go for different things for me it's not about the vendor hall it's there's some really cool connections that can happen there 
Well, and I would say that, uh, and I'm not sure if I'll go to virtual ISTE this year in part because it, that's a busy time for me, um, uh, to try to get things wrapped up before the end of the year. But, um, I, well, I love seeing Wes at ISTE. I mean, the two or three ISTEs that we've been there together, it was an opportunity to, uh, share a beer, talk, you'll know, be in each other's presence. Um, um, but, uh, and I, I do, I like the vendor hall personally, but it's not just because I like to see new stuff. That's part of it. I love to spend time in the, the startup pavilion because, uh, there's always ridiculous stuff there, most of which is not going to make it, but there's always a gem or two there that I know is going to make it. And that's always fun to watch. I also, the other thing that's really uh, valuable about that conference, and unfortunately this does not diminish the kind of boat show criticism that is, is, is often leveled at ISTE, but I find it important for strategic meetings with vendors that if you really want to ask something big of a vendor, or if you really want to forge a, a, a bigger partnership than simply being um, a, a financial relationship, that's the place to do it. Because oftentimes the CEO will be there or a, a, a upper management for sales positions. And I've had fascinating conversations with everyone from Google uh, to the Florida Virtual School um, at ISTE that I wouldn't be able to have otherwise. But, um, you know, I, I, the, the tracking component of things is concerning, but the part that we're going to have to figure out, and, and I don't know what, wh- what this happens is that we have to, we might have to trade the free nature of the internet, not, not the freedom nature, the free nature of the internet at some point to diminish the impact of advertising, right? Well, let me segue that and then let's, uh, man, can you believe we have like 11 minutes left? Maybe we started yeah. a couple minutes late, but let me just segue to a tech correction article with a fantastic podcast that I'm really inspired by. Um, and it's uh, by a great, great thinker called Ethan Zuckerman. He helped fo- found Tripod. Do you remember Tripod? I do. Back in the early days, Jason? Of yeah. the internet? Um, he is now part of a center that is being created uh, in the Northeast. It's called the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure. And so he has launched a new podcast called Reimagining the Internet. And part of what he is saying, this is going to be a series of interviews. And right now they just have the first episode where he's kind of sharing his biases and kind of where he's coming from with this. They are talking about how, like, we have highways, right? Highways and interstates in the United States and, you know, around the world, I think, are generally not in existence because somebody's going to profit from them. I mean, we have a lot of turnpikes now, but in general, like when Eisenhower set up the interstate system, you know, it was because there were a lot of important societal benefits that were going to come from a reliable, um, well-maintained set of roads that were, that were going to connect the nation. And so anyway, this, this is inspiring because on that note of what kind of future arch- digital architecture do we need? Um, we're going to, uh, you know, we, we need to play a long game and we need to think outside the current advertising dominated model, surveillance capitalism dominated model that we have. So that is a link that we've got in the show notes tonight under the, the tech correction, which I think is pretty inspiring. Um, let's hit a couple of these articles quick because I think we're going to need to in order to, to get to some of them. Uh, let me do a quick one that's also on a positive note, Jason. You have relatives, I think, that may not have connectivity, and maybe they want to stay that way. But SpaceX is out to provide connectivity in all parts of rural Montana. Uh, I don't know. Maybe if you're deep, deep in that valley where Lewis and Clark came, it's not going to work. But if you can get the satellite connection... Uh, this is an article from Ars Technica yesterday on October 27th. SpaceX Starlink public beta begins. It's $99 a month plus $500 up front. Now, they've called it the, quote, better than nothing beta to try to lower people's expectations. And they're only talking about, I think, 15 to 20 megabits per second down. But that is going to increase. The latency is projected to be really good. Uh, again, if you're not familiar, Starlink is ultimately going to include over 10,000 satellites that are in low earth orbit. And it's just going to be a quantum leap better than what we've had before with satellite phones and, and satellite connectivity. Uh, so Jason, you encourage your in-laws to sign up for the public beta. I think do you, do you I think did. they'll jump for that. Are you sir going to be ready to do this and move anywhere in the state of Montana with I could just see it now on the top of your car 
your Starlink antenna and you've got full <laughs> gaming capability right in the vehicle. Is is that in your future? Um, well, I mean, I've talked with my wife a lot that, I mean, I think her ultimate ultimate weekend would be completely off the grid. My my ultimate weekend would be completely off the grid with Internet access, right? So I... That's it's, not off the grid. Well, that's the thing, right? So, um, and, and we've talked about in the past that my, my in-laws do have a cabin in the Missouri River uh, outside of, actually, my, 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 the, the city I grew up in, which is Great Falls. They, they have a, 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 a cabin that's about half an hour out of Highwood, Montana, which is, I believe, southeast of Great Falls. And it, there's no internet access there, uh, period. Uh, there's no phone access there. They couldn't even get DSL, uh, although the distance would be too much. Like, their only choice is satellite internet. And satellite internet's terrible. It's expensive. Um, it is highly limited. And it, it's not really an option. And um, But it, it's not just there that they lack internet. They're at home, which is about a 20, well, it's literally a 20 minute drive from, from the, 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 uh, Capitol building of the state of Montana, 20 minute drive, and they have no viable internet access options there. And so we've been hacking together some solutions. And I do mean hacking together some solution, solutions utilizing, uh, 4G internet that we have pushed into a router, a Wi-Fi router that is a little off book. And I won't mention the vendors involved on the odd chance that they're one of our 101 downloads uh, uh, so that, that they'll sh- shut that off, but they have no access to internet. And so I did sign them up for the Starlink beta. Um, when I saw the article you tweeted out last night, Wes, I went and looked and they had actually asked for an update to my address. Um, so I have updated my address to my in-laws address and I think they might be, well, my wife even suggested that in that I can't go to my in-laws house right now and they've been actually extra quarantined. They're both, uh, retired out of the medical community. My, uh, father-in-law was an anesthesiologist. My mother-in-law was a nurse and then a nursing professor and they have been extremely careful in the era of COVID. And so I would feel safe, uh, visiting them and spending time at their home, but I can't go there right now because I can't work from there because only one of three cell providers provides a fast enough internet. And, um, and, and if I did it over time, I wouldn't have enough data from that internet provider anyways. So it is tempting to me because it makes their, their internet a real reality. And so $600 is a stiff investment. And I love, I love the better than nothing, right? Like that, that's a really smart way of putting that. Uh, to, to diminish expectations, but yeah, I might be tempted to do that. If no, for another reason, like my wife said earlier tonight, that 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 is spendy. But she said maybe you just want it to be nerdy and and be part of this experiment. And it, who knows what this looks like and 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 the realistic time frame for this rolling out. But it's a pretty huge deal for rural America. This this opens up transformative possibilities. You mentioned tonight on the show just how incredible it it was and should still be to have access to these news sources and these information sources that would have completely been, you know, off the table a number of years ago. Uh, when I did a, my first TEDx talk at the University of Oklahoma a few years ago, I told the story of, uh, of a really good family friend who was like a grandfather to me who grew up in the, um, the, 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 uh, the Valley of Texas in, in far South Texas. And, you know, he told me a story about when he was building his first radio, you know, and he was like putting a trash can on something as an amplifier in their garage. But at night when the atmospheric conditions were right, and we're talking about the Valley of Texas, like down by McAllen and stuff, they could hear Omaha and like, Oh my gosh, that oh, Nebraska. I mean, we're talking, you know, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. It, what we're talking about here is transformative and it really can open up doors, right? The possibility to have high speed internet connectivity, reliable connectivity, wherever you are can open up doors to, you know, live places and to do things that you just would not be able to, to do otherwise. This is connectivity. This is digital divide. Of course, this requires money, but I think it's exciting. And I'm, I'm, personally excited that this is something you, you may pursue. Um, Shelly and I've talked about it, you know, in terms of where we go and, and, and where we live, right. You know, if we're teaching online, if you got reliable internet, there's all kinds of possibilities for you there. Well, and I can see like, I, 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 I've, I've been tempted by the tiny house movement, not because it's realistic for me because I'm a pack rat. I mean, look at, 
got to get the right direction here. Look at the, uh, you know, this is just, this is just computer. And uh, well, actually, I think that that second shelf right above my head is just notebooks. So, um, I, you know, I am, I'm a bit of a pack rat digital and otherwise. So, uh, you know, it's not that realistic, but I could see buying, you know, maybe 10 acres in the mountains and putting, uh, you know, a little A-frame cabin there and spending the summer there or spending two weeks at wintertime there. And not that I, if I don't have the internet, you know, woe is me, but I would like to be able to work from there. That'd be super sweet. And, you know, and the other thing too is that the, the great thing about the Starlink internet technology, we've had a couple articles about this. We're not talking about sad, slow internet either. We're talking about a hundred down, a hundred up. Right. That is legit Internet and beats a lot of urban connections, too, in, in under uh, technology saturated areas. And so more opportunities here, more competition, the better. Hey, we're paying for the top cable connection we can have and we're limited at thirty five up. You know, the fact that this could be faster than that is is pretty exciting. Yep. Uh, let's get a couple more quick ones. and We're going to need to do Geeks of the Week. Um Apple is developing an alternative to Google search. This is huge. Uh, so this is Ars Technica from today on October 28th. I actually heard a different uh, source for this on my Google Home news this morning. Um, there is an antitrust suit. We talked about it last week on the show that the Department of Justice has filed against Google. And as I heard a commentator say today, it, it seems a bit out of touch, right? Like, Google's dominance of search is not really the top issue for people when it comes to technology. I mean, we got elections, we got pandemic, we got, you know, lots of other issues that are bigger. And um, the the article I think I was listening to was saying that like this case that the Department of Justice has filed against Google, it's not as strong as what they had against Microsoft, which they won. And what was that like, you know, 20 years ago? You know, that was that was a while ago. <clears throat> but this article is saying that Apple is uh, now sharing uh, certain results, not based on a Google search, but based on its own search engine. And there are bots that crawl the web and gather information. And the article talks about how Google's bot or sorry, Apple's bot. Uh, it's called Apple kit or no, it's called Apple bot uh, is showing up on the, the logs of uh, all kinds of websites. And so anyway, this is interesting. Um, the other article, not this one that I listened to today was saying Google could, could actually probably meet the, the demands of this doubt, this uh, department of justice. And I trust you pretty easily by saying, okay, we won't, you know, pay people to have us as their search engine. And we, there's a, you know, a few other things that they could do. Um, as far as market dominance, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, but I think it's significant. I mean, I want to use the best search engine. I love Google. I really do. Uh, I use every once in a while DuckDuckGo. Uh, I haven't used Yahoo forever. I never use Bing. The last time I used Bing, literally it linked me to malware. I was, I was installing a new Windows machine. I was trying to install Chrome. I Googled Chrome. The first hit on Bing, I was, Maybe I go too fast sometimes, but I was just click, click, click. And bef and literally before I knew it, I was installing a malware version of Chrome that Bing had recommended as their first search engine. And, you know, that was one of those never again will I, you know, will I use Bing? But I think that's interesting. So are you ready to switch over to Apple's search engine, Jason, as soon as they're, they're announced, ready to, to just ditch the Google? No, except that, I mean... I don't think people remember how bad search was before Google, right? And if there were a viable alternative, people would use it, right? Like, and I, I mean, I, I do occasionally use DuckDuckGo as well. And I can't say that I've, I've been linked to malware on Bing, but uh, I will say that I've done comparative searches before and it, it's just not as effective, right? Like, and if I know a certain piece of information exists, I will sometimes test both search engines. And I, and I, I admit I am a bit of a, a ninja on Google because I know some of the tricks to, to narrow down the searches, which is something I've picked up over the years. But, um, yeah, uh, but it would have to be good. And, you know, the thing about, uh, you, you know, Google's primary response so far, we talked about this a little bit last week, that people aren't forced to use Google and alternatives exist in the marketplace, right? There's nothing about Google that forces you to use it. The reason why I use it is because it's effective and it, it it's a tool set that I enjoy and find to be myself to be very productive in. So, 
We'll see, but you know, Apple's done well. Apple's done some really great software. Apple's done some terrible software. iCloud is still not great, uh, in my humble opinion, as in comparison to Google Drive or Dropbox or even OneDrive. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. All right. Uh, you want to pick up any of those Microsoft articles or should we Geek of the Week it? Yeah, two quick ones. Uh, first, um, uh, uh, Internet Explorer users, so I don't think that's a ton of our marketplace, are going to be surprised because certain websites in the relatively near future are going to be redirected to the new Edge browser, the Chromium-based Edge browser. And I guess the thing I would tell you, well, first and foremost – uh, I've felt that Internet Explorer has been a clunky mess for a long time. So if you are using Internet Explorer 11 still, please move to the new Edge browser. It is infinitely better. And the other thing I would also tell you, if you happen to work in IT, I know there are software suites, and some of them happen to be ones required uh, for accounting at the University of Montana that force Internet Explorer 11's framework to be able to work. Start kicking your vendors now to say it has to work outside of Internet Explorer's architecture because it's going away. And Microsoft has been very clear that the things they built into the the, the IE infrastructure that a lot of software is built on top of, unfortunately, will not be featured in Edge. And so you got to move away. And um, if you're if you just don't want to move software yet, uh, even though that that the updates aren't available, that's one thing. But if your vendor is, is, is dragging their feet on this, make them move now. It's time to have those conversations. And then just a kind of a, a program note, I guess. Uh, when the, the new version of Windows 10, the 10 October 2020 update is out. I have installed it. Um, I do not do upgrades on Windows because that has never gone well for me ever uh, since Windows 10 started. So I wiped my computer last week, downloaded the ISO. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I'm getting very excited here, apparently. I'll uh, say a comment while you're getting a drink. <laughs> Alt-Tab is updated for this. I was just seeing. Yes. And that's actually a power user tool, which you can do on the Mac, too, although it's Command-Tab. Um, Command-Tab and Alt-Tab have worked basically synonymously, where it'll just you know show you what's active, and you can quickly multitask your apps. But anyway, this is a, a refresh to Alt-Tab. So if you know what the heck I'm talking about, you are a geek. Yes, and um, and I, I'm noticing that like it's a subtle difference, but it's there. But um, you know, I would advise if you're going to update, um, um, if you're going to update, I would recommend just wiping and starting over again. But don't do that unless you know what you're doing, right? Like that can be a real. <laughs> please don't do. Please don't take that advice unless you know what you're doing. Important but, liability footnote to tonight's right, show. Right. Yeah, so, but I have to say I've installed it. I've had zero problems. I know there have been a lot of reports, but I honestly think that a lot of the reports of problems with Windows 10's updates is about the update, not about wiping and, 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 and starting over with that fresh new version. So, so far, so good for me. All right. Well, let's Geek of the Week it. We do like to share some little websites at the end of our show. I tend to overshare, and I've got three. First one, thanks to Peggy, Tour Creator by Google. I think I'm going to be uh, actually making a lesson coming up for my students. Uh, create an immersive 360-degree tour right from your computer. And the fact that this is fully functional on the Chromebook as well as Safari for iOS or iPadOS, I should say makes this very attractive. Uh, this one's from Tony Vincent, teleprompt.me. If you've got students or yourself creating some videos and you need a teleprompter, uh, this thing will listen to you. So you can load up your script. It's going to listen to you and it's going to scroll by itself to keep you going with the script that you've written for yourself as you're recording, uh, looking at your screen. Hey, remote learning, teachers doing remote learning, that you know could be something to use. And then the very last thing on the topic of uh, search, I learned about because of these articles we were reading this week, Neva, N-E-E-V-A. It is ad-free private search. Uh, it has a wait list. You got to sign up. And so I've signed up to join it. But, you know, I, I do love the Google. I think it's fantastic. But I think privacy is important as well. And I think in general, competition can be a good thing for consumers. So I'm going to check that out. I have not gotten my email yet because I just signed up. But I didn't know about that. And that's my third Geek of the Week. What do you have, Dr. Nice? I'm sharing a great article from Chrome Unboxed on October 21st that gives you instructions on how to download the Linux version 
of Microsoft Edge, the Chromium-based version of Microsoft Edge, and install it on your Chromebook. And so this is a scenario, if you are a Chromebook user, either by district uh, uh, application or you've bought one yourself, and you are somewhere in the Microsoft universe, you can actually download this browser, use it as you regularly would the the Edge browser, and then keep kind of a second set of, of accounts under the same piece. So as an example of this, my institution is Google Apps, but I work on a campus that broadly has implemented Microsoft tools. So my email is Microsoft-based. And so what I have done in my work account, my work Chromebook account, is I've downloaded the Microsoft Edge browser on Linux or for Linux. I've installed it on my Chromebook. And whenever I'm doing University of Montana stuff, which is based in Microsoft, I just open up the, the Edge browser instead of the Chrome browser in Chrome OS. And I can keep those things kind of separated and uh apart. And I don't think there's a lot of great Linux software for the typical end user that you'd want to install, but this is an example, and Firefox happens to be as one as well. It's a wonderful thing to install on your Chrome OS device. Well, that is excellent. We're probably just a minute or two over our normal hour-long time, but if you've stayed with us, we appreciate it. Peggy has. Uh, Peggy, by the way, has a newsletter that she uh, shares with Nuzzle, and that is part of my uh, at least several times a week reading to always learn some new websites. So Geeks of the Week are sometimes coming from there. So uh, I'm Wes Fryer, W. Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org is my blog, and I'm sharing curriculum for media literacy as well as fifth grade Spanish, which I'll be teaching till mid-January uh, on mdtech.cassidy.org. Dr. Neifer, where can folks find you when you're not here on Wednesday nights? I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I'm trying to post a little more on LinkedIn to make maybe make some professional connections. And I have a lot of people that aren't really Twitter people that that are ed tech folks that I find that spend a little more time on LinkedIn. So you can find me by just typing in Nifer N-E-I-F-E-R, into LinkedIn. Or I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog.ncc.org. It's not too late to apply to present at NCC 2021, which will be a virtual conference. We're really excited about the prospects of getting together people from across the United States to talk ed tech with this wonderful regional conference that has a national audience www.ncce.org. All right. Well, we want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. We want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. And you can also download both small MP3 versions, audio-only versions, as well as smaller video versions of our podcast by visiting EdTechSR.com. You can subscribe to us on Google. Uh, we always have more links than we have time to talk about, and you can check all those out at edtechsr.com slash links. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and stay warm, at least if you're here in the Northern Hemisphere, because apparently, you know, winter is not just coming, it has it has come to uh, not only Montana, but it's come here to Oklahoma as well. And uh, yeah, the ice may be done. I think we're going to get up into the 60s this weekend, but, you know, we... We had our ice storm, and uh, we're, we're ready to be done with that for a while. Good night, everybody. Good night.